Well, hello there, listener. My name is Matthew Renfro, host of The Fro Show, and you're listening to another great Four-Eyed Radio product. For more shows, check out foureyedradio.com. It's your good pal, Steve-O, from the 4i Radio Network. I'm here to talk to you about a wonderful designer we all know, uh, Revenge Lover. Illustrates and designs that fit your personality. For samples and inquiries, please visit revengelover.com. And just do yourself a favor and tell them Steve-O sent you. I know it really doesn't count for anything, but, I mean, come on. Who's gonna, who are you gonna trust? You gonna trust, you gonna trust somebody else? No, you're gonna trust me, Steve-O. Because, face it, I'm awesome. Starfleet Escape Podcast. Prepare for launch in three, two, one. Enjoy the ride. Welcome to the Starfleet Escape Podcast on the Four Eyed Radio Network, where we escape into the Star Trek universe. This is episode number 57 and is being recorded on July 20th, 2015. Today's topic Axinar with Alec Peters and Robert Meyer Burnett. I'm Aaron. And I'm Eric. Hello there. Thanks for having us. Thanks for coming. We appreciate it. So, it's been a while. Yes. It has been a while. <laughs> it was, uh, it's been at least uh, January 2014. Uh, it was our 34th episode. Oh, wow. And we talked to you, Alec, when you were uh, just launching the first campaign for XNR. And yeah, that's right. Uh, amazing what a year and a half can do. Yeah, uh, that's, ain't that the truth. <laughs> yes, we've come a long way. It's been a long, strange journey, but a good journey. <laughs> All right, so why don't we jump into, you have an Indiegogo campaign right now. Yes, right, uh-huh. And as of 8 p.m. Eastern, you have $264,556 raised. Well, it's that last $56 that really counts. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's going to put you over the edge. <laughs> over the top. Right, so you have about 23 days left in your campaign, so this is, what, about seven or nine days in? Well, well actually 11. It's a little 11. long. This campaign was a little long. It's about 33 days. So I think we're in day 11, I think, at this point. But, yeah, so it's it's gone well. Um, we have a lot of loyal fans who want to see this done. What we're, we, we Last year's um, Kickstarter campaign, we raised 638000 And as we always say, as we specifically said in that Kickstarter – that was to build out the infrastructure of Ares Studios that mm. would allow us to make Axnar and other Star Trek projects. So we got a facility and paid for the first year's rent. We started building sets. We retrofitted the, the warehouse to be a soundstage, all sorts of things, not, you know, which aren't necessarily complete at this point. But, yeah, we did all sorts of, uh, of things. And uh, it's been going well, but it's a lot of hard work. I've been working full-time on it since that Kickstarter, and so is Diana Kingsbury, our director of fulfillment. You literally, when you have 10,000 donors and raise that kind of money, you literally have to have a full-time fulfillment person mm-hmm. because we give out so much cool stuff. So uh, she's been working just, you know, helping people out, getting out the Prelude to Axonar stuff, working on the Axonar stuff. So we have a donor store where you can donate for lots of cool things, so model kits and patches and t-shirts and stuff so yeah so there's uh it's but it's been going well and uh rob here joined us as director full-time and uh we're happy to have him on board well thank you you know I, we should point out too that 
the last Kickstarter where we earned that 600 grand, we only asked for a hundred thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. So we were certainly not expecting to get the kind of financial support that we received from the community after they had seen Prelude to Axonar. It was really gratifying. I was the editor of Prelude, but to sort of help bring Alec and, and Christian's vision to the, the screen. And this is something Alec created and has wanted to do for literally decades. And to see that it was embraced by the fan community the way it was, was hugely gratifying. And the response we had to the first scene that we released from the Axonar feature seems to be uh, equally as enthusiastic. So that's that's been great to be a part of. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure you guys have been like just completely floored and surprised about just the reaction that you're getting from the fan community at large. Yeah, I mean, it's been, it, it just, it, it really goes to show though, I think Alec and I, along with everyone else, we're first and foremost huge fans. Mm-hmm. And I think the Star Trek fan base, the longtime fan base that has been fans of the Prime Universe, uh, has not been served in 10 years. Yeah. You know, Enterprise went off the air 10 years ago. And um, there's been nothing set in the Prime Universe. It's been as long uh, a time frame as the end of the original series to the debut of Star Trek The Motion Picture Mm -hmm. as we've seen Prime Universe material uh, created. And um, at least new Prime Universe material that we haven't seen before. I mean, there's obviously Star Trek Phase 2 and Star Trek Continues, but they're sort of showing you uh, things in the same way you've seen them before, whereas we're trying to do something brand new set within the Prime Universe. Mm -hmm. So after you guys have had two very successful campaigns on Kickstarter, why was there a shift to Indiegogo this time around? Basically, Indiegogo came after us pretty hard, and they really wanted our business. They've had a couple very successful Indiegogo campaigns this year. Uh, Con Man, which raised $3.1 million. That was the Nathan Philly and Alan Tudyk project, as well as Super Troopers 2, which raised like $4.3 or $4.5 million. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, I, I think they've made a compelling case that they're, they're a really viable platform for filmmakers, and that they came with us with a very good offer. I mean, they, they basically said, look, we're going to put our money where our mouth is and do all these things for you. And, and they have, and, and uh, so it's, it's uh, worked out well. And it's a great platform. It's just like Kickstarter. There's, as a matter yeah. of fact, it's better than Kickstarter on the payment side of things because they accept PayPal as well as credit cards, and we don't have to deal with the, the obnoxious Amazon payment system that Kickstarter forces us to go. Mm-hmm. I have to say, I, I've been a backer so far of uh, all three campaigns, and I just want to say I've been very impressed with the, the weekly updates that you guys put out, uh, including the perk fulfillment. So big, you know, shout out to, to the team that you've uh, put together. Thanks. Well, you know, we've got literally we've moved on to I now write a daily blog, mm-hmm. uh, the captain's log, which is about the production. What is happening? What are we doing on a daily basis? And um, and Diana writes uh, two, twice a week. She writes a fulfillment blog. Like here's what's happening with the stuff. And here's what we're shipping out. And it really is, I think, the hallmark of the Axonar campaign, crowdfunding campaigns, is our communication. We, we just believe in over-communicating to you guys, to our donors, what's happening, where's your money going, be accountable for it, be transparent about it. And, you know, we publish the budgets, we publish the prelude budget. We're, uh, you know, we just published a, a brief uh, annual report synopsis, which is getting expanded into a full annual report. Like, here's what we're doing, here's what's happened. So those are all really important things for us to, to really keep everyone fully informed and give you like 
make you part of the team, make you feel like, hey, I, we're part of this Star Trek revolution. Well, I was going to say, to add to that, I mean, it's it's our fan base and the donor base I've always thought of as sort of our employers, you know, and, and I think we owe it to our employers to report back in terms of our our uh, job performance. And we wouldn't we wouldn't even be doing this if we didn't have the kind of financial and also fan support that we're getting so much of because otherwise uh, there'd be no reason for us to do it and we wouldn't have the ability to do it. And I've always thought that like Alec and I do these podcasts and we try and do video casts and, and that requires a great deal of time and effort on our part. I mean, we're doing mm-hmm. videos that we have to cut together and we're putting music on them and graphics and, and all of that is in addition to the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm editing features as my day job and, now I'm trying to transition into working on Axonar full time, but it's it's tough because, you know, uh, contrary to what people think, we're not like paying ourselves huge salaries out of this money that we're getting. We want to put every dollar back onto the screen. Oh you yeah. Know? And and I think if if you see the the Vulcan scene we recently dropped, mm-hmm. the first scene we shot, I mean, we maximized every dollar we were able to do that for for a comparatively small sum of money, but. I think the results speak for themselves, and if we can bring that to a feature film, it's going to be mm-hmm. pretty spectacular. Oh, uh, speaking of the uh, the Vulcan uh, preview uh, that you guys put out, it really sets the tone for the political landscape going into Axanar. So, when was that filmed, and will this be part of the final movie? Oh, I, I mean, absolutely. We we shot that on June thirteenth. Uh, at our studio outside and we shot in natural sunlight and I I worked on it I planned it meticulously with Alec uh, and Tobias and Milton Santiago our cinematographer for about a month beforehand and because it had to be because it was entirely in a virtual environment uh, we couldn't leave anything to chance and because Mm -hmm. we wanted to shoot it in natural sunlight against green screen that's a really daunting proposition outside because obviously the sun is always moving and yet for the scene, the sun has to be in one place. So it, there was a lot of pre-planning that went into that. And um, that's, I think, a, a lot of what you're going to get from Axonar is that because we have our own studio now, because we're afforded the opportunity to have a place where we can plan, you know, I can get on to the bridge set weeks, if not months in advance to begin planning how we can do this movie. Uh, as I'm fond of saying, we're basically making a $100 million space epic for 1% of that budget, which is the exact opposite <laughs> of what Hollywood does. Mm-hmm. So, and, abs- and I think it absolutely sets the tone for the, the script that Alec and Bill Hunt have written is a very adult, it's, it's both an action-packed space adventure, but it's also very much a political thriller set in the Star Trek universe, where you basically have these two opposing captains you've got kelvar garth and you have caught with the war the klingon warlord karn who are going head to head but you know think more along the lines of of errand of mercy and um Mm -hmm. balance of terror and things like that i mean the great war stories in the star trek universe taste of armageddon is a war story a private little war is a war story and these are star trek war stories are are as much about people and philosophy as they are about warring uh, galactic empires. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, I think the Vulcan scene is definitely uh, uh, a taste of the tone. It, it, it wasn't exactly... There's a lot of humor in Axanar, 
that you right. don't see on the Vulcans in the Vulcan scene. <laughs> but there there is a lot of I mean we've got we've got our great characters. We have Travis, Ramirez, and Sonia Alexander and Garth. When they get together, they're uh, they're they're a lively bunch. This morning I was watching the Axonar panel from San Diego Comic Con, and was it the Vulcan scene that was planned out using action figures? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, <laughs> I I made a story reel. Basically, a story reel is what they do in animation, where they they basically use storyboards, but they cut them together as if you're cutting together real coverage. So I read both parts of the scene into uh, the Avid, and then I shot every single shot that you... There's 25 shots in the... Well, actually, 26 shots in the finished Vulcan scene. And I recreated each one of those shots uh, with action figures. And then I cut back and forth so you could actually sit down, even though it was just... Once you got past the fact that it was action figures, you could watch it and see how the scene would play out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I was able to show that to my cinematographer. I was able to send that to Tobias Richter. I could show Alec. Uh, and we could all sit down and watch it and analyze it and make changes to it, which we did. There was a lot of dialogue that we changed based on looking at that story reel. And, and it allowed us to pre-plan... So on the day when we actually shot it, we also could know where we had to move the green screen. Mm. So it was a, an incredibly useful tool. And Tobias then took that story reel and refined it and created VFX animatics to show me exactly where the camera moves would go uh, and things like that. So it, it worked out really well. And I'm probably going to do a version of, of the Axonar feature entirely with action figures and models for the space <laughs> battles and things. And I, it seems funny, but, but when you watch it all together, right. it's a great tool so everybody knows what's in my head. Mm-hmm. So when I'm like, okay, here's what I want, and it, it, you know, I can't draw, so I can't be like Ridley Scott and draw really effective storyboards. Mm-hmm. So it's a very helpful tool. Nice. So we talked a little bit earlier about the uh, Aries Studios. So can you tell us more about Aries, Aries Studios and maybe what it'll be used for in the future uh, in addition to Axonar and uh, what the facility is like. So it's a uh, 16,000 square foot warehouse that we've kind of converted into a soundstage. And it's the, the whole idea is to give us a base of operations where we're going to build all the sets for Axonar and then we're going to be able to shoot other Star Trek projects and then other genre projects. Mm-hmm. You know, right now we're in discussions to develop an- another se- a web series that honestly will be spectacular. We're so excited about it. But we want to keep doing Star Trek. So after Axonar, we have um, Tales of the Four Years War, which is a kind of an anthology. Uh, kind of like we're, we're actually publishing a book, Four Years War Anthology, which will basically be the basis for this. So you'll, you'll have um, the Four Years War Anthology will have six stories, one about each character in Prelude to Axonar. And you'll so you'll learn about Travis, uh, Sam Travis, and Sonia Alexander, and Ramirez, and Karn, and Sabal, and what are each of them doing in, during the war outside of Prelude to Axonar or Axonar? And then that'll be a basis for doing a, a full-fledged movie, uh, Tales of the Four Years' War. Because we asked our, our we asked the fans, mm-hmm. after Axonar, what do you want to see? We gave them like three options: Tales of the Four Years' War. Robert April in the early voyages of the Enterprise, or Captain Pike. So, Tales of the Four Years War came in first. The Romulan Wars was a writing candidate that came in second. Oh, wow. April came in third, and Pike came in fourth. So, it was pretty easy. And Tales of the Four Year War was the runaway winner. So, people want to see more Axanar, they're going to get it. Very nice. 
So uh, getting back to Axanar, when was the decision or how was the decision made to break it into four episodes instead of a two hour movie? Well, um, you know, that's that is really a funding issue. Okay. It's like hmm. we're making a feature film. But if we don't get all the money to make a feature film, then we will break it down by act. We have four acts in this in this roughly ninety page screenplay. So each one's gonna play out to you know roughly twenty two, twenty three pages. Um, and what we will do is if we only get half the money, we'll make half of Axonar, show it, and then come out and ask for more money. You know, if that's the way we have to do it. It really is all about the funding. But it's it is a film. The idea is it's a feature. Right, right. What has the biggest obstacle been during this whole process? Hmm. Rob, what do you think? I think it's money. I think the challenge is always money because, mm-hmm. frankly, with uh, we have such a great team. I mean, we really have such an amazing team of people working on Axonar that the challenge isn't my team. The challenge is is really having the money to do everything we want to do because we've got you know, two great DPs working on this project. We've got Rob directing, who directed Free Enterprise, you know, and produced movies. And we've got, you know, just go down the lane, John Iacovelli is production designer. And we've got so many great people working on this that you can really tackle any challenge that comes up. The key is getting the money to give you the opportunity to do everything. Rob, how do you feel about that? Um, I think, you know, for me, the biggest... The biggest, it's not really an obstacle, it's just something to be always mindful of, to be ever vigilant about, is that I pre-plan and make sure that enough pre-planning and enough pre-production goes in to what we're doing so we can execute at the level that people are accustomed to. Mm -hmm. You know, because we're trying to do something that really hasn't been done before, making such a large-scale movie on such a small budget... The more pre-planning and the more thought that we can put into pre-production, the better off we are. And that requires a lot of hours and a lot of time uh, from everyone involved when, you know, people aren't getting paid what they would normally get paid. And, you know, we got to find that time and make it worth worth people's while. Like on when we shot the Vulcan scene, for instance, Milton Santiago, our DP, luckily owns some cameras and we did things like we were able to take those cameras out before we shot and do tests mm. and to, to see with, with our actual wardrobe in, su- in the actual sunlight where we were going to shoot to decide which camera we were going to use. And based on the tests, we decided to go with the Red Dragon. And, and that would be something that isn't necessarily on another production. You'd have to rent cameras. And luckily, mm. we have access to the equipment and the facilities and we're able to really make use of these things and, and put in the time. So on the actual day, we're not fighting the clock. We already know exactly what we're doing. So it allowed us to get the kind of results that we were able to get. And I don't know if that's so much an obstacle as just a methodology that we have to continue to practice. We can't, the only way to make the kind of film that fans and donors expect is to keep that level of production pre-production and pre-planning uh, on every level and that is it's not so much an obstacle as it is it, it, it's more of a lifestyle choice <laughs> that we've <laughs> got to keep that work you've got to you've got to do as much work before you get to the set as you do on the day and that's something we will continue and i certainly will continue to do throughout this whole process excellent um, and it's you know it's i'll tell you i'll, I'll tell you a funny story like <laughs> You know, I, I planned this whole thing out, and I said to Tobias, Tobias Richter at the Lightworks, our amazing maestro of visual effects, I said, you know, Tobias, I, 
I want to show an establishing shot of Vulcan, but since it's wartime, it would be great to have Vulcan ships. Do you happen to have a model that you've already made of Vulcan ships? And he said, well, no, Rob, I, I don't. And I don't know if we've got time to, I, I'd have to build a model from scratch. And mm -hmm. um, he didn't know if he could do that. And then he stopped and he thought, well, wait a minute. And he actually pulls out of his archives. He was working on a game that never reached fruition. And he had three different Vulcan ship designs that he'd worked on a couple of years beforehand. And he said, why don't you pick one of these and, and uh, we can make use of that. And I picked, I think, the beefiest, sturdiest looking ship. And I thought, I said to myself, this looks kind of like a destroyer. And I would imagine that they, they Vulcan at, in the time of war would have these ships orbiting around Vulcan all the time, you know, a constant state of, of uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and uh, Tobias said first, well, Rob, 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 the Vulcans don't have destroyers. You understand that? And I was like, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, Tobias, I understand. We'll, we'll call these perimeter defense vessels. He's like, oh, much, much better, much better. Uh, and so he was able to come up with these cool designs that are very redolent of the ships that we'd seen on Enterprise. Mm -hmm. um, but but new, and and that was something we're always trying to. Ex whenever we can expand or contribute to the Star Trek universe in any way, whether it's through costumes you've never seen, ship designs you've never seen, such as the Ares, but they look like they'll fit in. I mean, uh, Alec and I right. are very aware of we want to. We constantly want to be adding to the Star Trek canon and the Star Trek universe. Uh, in interesting ways. So we, whenever we have an opportunity to do something new, we will. Yeah, and the biggest thing, uh, just watching the Vulcan preview, I was just I was blown away because it looked like it had come straight from Enterprise. Like it oh, I, like, I, I, yeah. I love hearing that. Yeah, so so when I watched it, I was like, wow. I mean, uh, it's it's obvious you guys have taken the time to... Uh, really make this fit into canon, and it shows. So I, I, I really thought that I was watching, like, a new Enterprise episode at that point. Look, that's the highest praise that we can get from the fan base and the donor base, absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. I mean, we, we're we both huge Star Trek geeks. You know, we always say you can't out-geek us. And everything <laughs> that we do has a rationale and has an explanation. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, uh, listen, just calling it the Four Years' War, I mean, that's a nod to FASA and the role-playing games there. Yeah. Um, we, just, we just inserted a huge nod to John Ford's The Final Reflection in, a, in the script that I'm just totally, it's, it's the coolest thing since I made the narrator of Prelude John Gill. I mean, it's that <laughs> it's, it's just, uh, you know, if you're a John Ford fan, you're going to freak out when you hear this. You know, but those are little, you know, little things that we insert to let you know that we're one of you, that we get it, that we love this passionately. Yeah, I mean, literally, Alec and I, you know, Alex wanted to tell the story of, of the Battle of Axanar for two decades, and I've certainly wanted to make a Star Trek movie my whole life, and I want mm -hmm. to make the kind of Star Trek movie that I, as a fan, want to see. I've never understood why, to me, Star Trek fan is not a bad thing. And I, I've been one of the biggest fans my whole life. And I, I was always tired when I would watch things in either episodes or movies that, con that I know are wrong. For instance, mm -hmm. when I saw, saw Star Trek III for the first time, there's no such thing as a Klingon bird of prey. And, and indeed, that was an actual mistake 
in Harv Bennett's original outline, his original story that he wrote for Star Trek Three, it was the Romulans that were mm-hmm. in that story, not the Klingons. And they just didn't bother changing the name of the ship when they added Klingons because there was nobody there that even thought that it was a big deal. But now, as a lifelong Star Trek fan, when I saw Star Trek Three in 1984, I'm like, but there's no such thing as a Klingon bird of prey. <laughs> and now there is. And now... Yeah. Uh, we have had to deal with that, and it's just as stupid. When one of the great things is that the Romulan, when you first saw a Romulan ship in Balance of Terror, it was painted with a great bird of prey, and and that sort of diminished in my mind the Star Trek universe because somebody wasn't mm-hmm. thinking, and that will never be the case in Axanar with Alec and myself. Nice. Well, um, you guys were talking about you know the original concept, uh, you know. 25, 20, 25 years ago, did you ever imagine that would have such an impact in the Star Trek community? Because the the amount of you know funding that you guys have received is testament to uh, the fan base supporting you. Yeah, I, I listen. We are always overwhelmed by the, the the fan mail we get. You know, because the fan mail is is one, it, it's overwhelmingly positive. And it's people just saying, look, this is the Star Trek that I want. You're telling Star Trek the way I want it to be told. And that's, um, that's both daunting because it's a huge responsibility, but it's also heartwarming because it tells us we're doing the right thing. And so uh, it's, it, it is our fuel. It's the feedback of the fans is the fuel that keeps us going, along with the donations. <laughs> yeah, yeah and I, look, I, I, I think that one of the things that – I've always taken the Star Trek universe very seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think that, and that doesn't mean that you can't have humor, because I, I think that all of the humor in, for instance, the original series was never at the expense of any of our characters. Mm-hmm. It was always character-based. For instance, in a piece of the action on, on Sigma Osha, when you've got the Chicago mobs of the 20s that have taken over the whole planet, when Kirk can't drive a stick shift, he can't drive an... Uh, uh, manual transmission automobile from the 1920s uh, and it's it's he can't quite get it going and, and Spock turns to Kirk and says you're an excellent starship commander but as a taxi driver you leave something to be desired I mean that's a very funny situational <laughs> bit of humor that isn't at the expense of either one of them and I think that and in trouble with tribbles when when Nils Barris or something is, is addressing Kirk, and he says, Kirk, you need to take this seriously. Kirk says, I, I do take this seriously. It is you I do not. You know, and, and it's even, even when there's humor in Star Trek, it's highbrow humor. And I mm-hmm. think that what we strive to do is create highbrow Star Trek. And I think our characters reflect that, and I think fans understand that, that we'll never pander, we'll never do something that... that uh, will always take the high road when it comes to the Star Trek universe. It's excellent. Is the uh, script complete for Axanar, or is it always cool. evolving? Well, no, it's uh, Bill Hunt, my co-writer, and I have um, been working on revising it for the past month, mm-hmm. and it is right now, um, he just sent me his revision for Act 4, the first three acts are done, and uh, so our process is, I had, I had written the original script, Bill comes in and, and revises it, and then we kind of merge the two versions based on what, you know, his feedback about what he thinks is important to change and my feedback about what's important to keep. And we go back and forth, and, you know, 
uh, and work that way. But it's it's worked out great so far. The first three acts are much better from for him having uh, been through it. And um, so yeah, so th the script that will come out at the end of this week that'll go all the department's heads will pretty much be the final script. That doesn't mean there won't be dialogue changes, but there will mm -hmm. be no character changes and no you know set changes and the big the stuff. It will be locked, but. You know, dialogue is often tweaked, so that's mm -hmm. not that's not a concern. It's a fantastic. I mean, it's a fantastic screenplay, and I, I dare say, uh, you know, maybe not since Star Trek II has there been a more satisfying screenplay written for a Star Trek movie. Wow. Um, and I'm really excited to sink my teeth into it and and direct it because I I just think that the the storyline is great, the characters are great, and and it it really is very much at its heart a Star Trek story and that even though it's set during a time of great conflict mm -hmm. um, it really is about uh, people and and humanity even when I mean humanity I mean humanity is a metaphoric term when you're dealing with Andorians and Vulcans and Klingons <laughs> and Tellarites but the heart the human heart that Kirk spoke about in Star Trek 5 I mean that's it's I'm not saying the movies like Star Trek 5 but I'm just saying that it has <laughs> You know, it's and it's very much inspired by movies like Patton, you know, mm. and, and Master and Commander, and and these mm -hmm. kinds of things. So I know we talked about this last time uh, with each species having their own uh, ships in the war. Is that still something that's going to happen? Will we see like an Andorian ship uh, joining the battle? Well, no, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Not real. What, what you see, what you find is, you know, we we have simply posited that there is a common uh, uh, design uh, throughout Starfleet. That the benefit of of Starfleet is that all the worlds join together and come up with the best of the best, and and whatever that may be, and that may be Andorian phasers and a Vulcan warp drive and Tellarite shields. Who knows? But they're coming up with the best, and thus. If you're coming up with a design that is an amalgamation of the best of all these species, why would you use your own design? Because this amalgamation is the best. Mm -hmm. And there needs to be a certain standardization throughout Starfleet because that's what allows ships to be refit easily and repaired easily and, and, sh and components shared. And, and so, um, you know, uh, and we also talk about how the ships work, that basically it's it, uh, that all the controls might be somewhat different depending on the species. Maybe uh, the color scheme is different because, you know, Andorians see a different light spectrum than Vulcans do or, you know, things like that. So, yeah, so there's – we take all – listen, we literally talk about all this and hash it all out so we have a rational reason for every decision that we make. Well, uh, speaking of, you know, building ships and all that, so the, the bridge the bridge set construction, is that completed or is, is still being worked on? And if so – how does it feel to sit in the captain's chair? <laughs> well, the bridge work uh, continues. The, the the structure is up. Um, we're working on the on the command well now. The, the the consoles that are in the center, which are radically different from TOS, um, so that's where where we are right now. And then we'll be painting and, and putting in instrumentation and, and monitors and things like that. But um, yeah, so basically it's it's still a work in process. But you know, it's about. 60, it's about two-thirds done, I guess, maybe. Maybe I'll say it's 60%, 65% done. Um, but but to sit, to sit in, in it, you know, it fully encloses you um, all the way around, 360 degrees. So when you, you sit in it, 
I mean, it really is the fulfillment of, of when I was five years old, pretending I was sitting in the captain's chair in my family room back home in Seattle. I mean, but it's there for real. You know, it's a full-sized bridge, and it's just, I mean, when it has all the electronics in and everything, it's its amazing. And uh, it really, it, it's just a, I can't, just sit in it is, it's nuts. It's really cool. <laughs> That's awesome. And what's great about our bridge, as opposed to other bridges that have been made, is our bridge is entirely wild. It, it comes apart like big pie pieces, and it all mm. comes apart into sections. So we literally can um, shoot in any direction, and we can shoot. Even the, the, the turbo shaft is modular, so it can slide out and slide back in when we need it. And we can get any – I mean – I've always said that that unlike other places like our other other fan films like Star Trek Continues or Star Trek Phase Two, which are mm -hmm. trying to recreate uh, something that they they did 50 years ago, we are trying to shoot as you can see in the Vulcan scene. We're trying to do a widescreen science fiction epic. So I've always often said that when they made say World War II movies in the 60s, whether it was Patton, whether it was The Great Escape, whether it was Where Eagles Dare, uh, they looked a certain way. Mm -hmm. But then when you saw Saving Private Ryan, uh, which came out in 1997, it was still World War II. It was the same armor, the same uniforms and things like that. But it looked radically different because filming technology had come so far. And it really gave you a realism that had never been seen before as far as that material was concerned. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have something that looks radically different, I think than what you've seen, especially from other fan films, but also from what you've seen in past Star Trek movies. That's very exciting. <laughs> That's very cool. Yeah, so, I mean, but, but firmly set in the Star Trek universe. I mean, you, it'll be yeah. very recognizable. It'll just feel very different, and hopefully it'll feel a lot more visceral and a lot more real. Mm -hmm. The same way that I think uh, Prelude had a really different and interesting feel to it, the way it was shot, the way Christian was emulating he his big inspiration was from this Muhammad Ali documentary he had seen and uh, I thought it really added but for me as the editor on Prelude it was it was a lot of fun doing something that was so radically different from what we'd seen before but still very much set within the Star Trek universe yeah just the entire concept of having like a in universe uh documentary is uh was radically different and um, it put a new perspective on it. Yeah, absolutely. And that was a lot of fun to do. You know, but again, that came out of Alex and, and, and Christian's script, and it was, mm -hmm. uh, it was great stuff. And those actors, I mean, I could sit there and watch, those, getting the dailies to cut that stuff together, I just sat there and would watch take after take after take and be wildly entertained by them because they were so good and so entertaining and I mean they were such great even though it's funny because Prelude those characters are just sitting stationary in a chair talking <laughs> and yet it's still riveting to listen to them absolutely uh, so um, what's next for XNR in terms of uh, maybe any upcoming convention appearances getting getting the word out there about XNR sure there is first of all we'll be at Galacticon in Seattle uh, next week uh, that is, uh, if, you, if you're going there, Galacticon is, uh, you know, it started out as a Battlestar Galactica convention, but it is now uh, kind of like an old geek convention, and uh, Star Trek, uh, Firefly, Battlestar, but it's still predominantly Battlestar Galactica. 
Um, so that's really exciting. So we're excited about that. It's up in Seattle. It's July 31st to August 2nd. Uh, we're going up there to Rob Burnett's hometown. Uh, <laughs> also, also the hometown of Terry McIntosh, our chief technology officer and co-producer. So uh, we're all going up there. Um, we're excited. We're going to have a great time up there. Um, hopefully, uh, I think Bill Waters and Marianne Butler, our associate producers, they're coming up as well. Um, Kurt Cox, our wardrobe uh, consultant, he's coming up. So we have a big act on our contingent there. We have a panel. We have a booth. You get to see us, hang out with us, please. Um, come drink with us, whatever. Um, it'll be a lot of fun. And uh, after that, Las Vegas Star Trek convention. We will be there on my company, PropWorks, my auction house. Uh, we are doing a big Star Trek profit costume auction uh, with great stuff uh, for all Star Trek fans, all price ranges from $100 to $10,000 and everything in between. So um, we will be there. We'll have a big presence there. Please come by. I, most people like to go to that convention. I know I do. And uh, um, yeah, so Axon have a big presence there. So those are the two big ones. And then after that, we're really talking Dragon Con. Oh, wow. Nice. Before we go, I wanted to ask you about the Axonar smartphone app. Aha. Okay. <laughs> um, I saw some, just some, I guess, mock-up screenshots. Um, right. I was wondering if you could divulge any more information of what what you can do within the app. Uh, the Axonar um, phone app, yeah. Um, Bill Waters, Aaron Harvey, and Terry McIntosh have been working on that for a couple months. We're totally excited about it. It's going to be super cool. It's a way, basically, to get content anywhere, anytime. There will be an iPhone and an Android version. Not so much, not so sure about a Windows version for you, you dilettantes uh, uh, who feel the need to keep supporting Microsoft. Um, but there's definitely iPhone and Android app versions. Um, it, it's basically, you know, we have so much content we're delivering now. People want to be able to get it all the time, and we're like, yeah, sure, here. Um, here's another way for you to get content and find out about all the latest and greatest on Axonar while you're on the road. And uh, so it should be out, I'm hoping, in two weeks. Okay. Hoping for Vegas, which will be a lot of fun. Nice. And will it be uh, a free download? Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. Oh, hell yeah. Nice. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you both uh, for joining us today. It was it was great having you here. Um, is there anything else you would like to say about Axonar before we go? Well, I, I'd like to just say uh, I'm always amazed and touched and also grateful uh, from all the fans and the donors who have who have come to support this project and all the kind words and and uh, everything people have said about uh, the project and what we've tried to do and also the fact that they continue to support with their hard-earned dollars. I mean, we know that, especially in this, in this day and age, every dollar counts, and it's, it's tremendous that we're able to, uh, to get that from you and to get that from all the fans and the donors, and I, I can't thank them enough. Absolutely. All about the fans. Awesome. And again, we'll post a link to the Indiegogo on our website so everyone who hasn't been on the Facebook or uh, or on your website and haven't found the link, uh, they'll be able to find it there. Great. Awesome. We appreciate it. Yeah, and, and thank you again so much, you guys, for, for joining us. It's uh, really been a treat talking with you, and we'll definitely have you on again uh, once it once it airs, once it's once it's there. Wow, that's you tremendous. Come by anytime, guys. All right. All right. All right thank Take you. care, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks a lot.
You have been listening to the Starfleet Escape Podcast on the Four-Eyed Radio Network, where you can catch a new episode every other Monday. You can find us on the web at sfescapepod.com. Follow us on Twitter at sfescapepod. Like us on facebook.com slash sfescapepod. And add us to your circle on Google Plus by going to google.sfescapepod.com. This has been another proud production of the Four-Eyed Radio Network. You want to see more shows, go check out www.fouredradio.com, you winkers.